Bibles, if you got one from the coffee house, it's page 831. 831. It's Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 6. Can I tell you all about really our visions for the year? And I haven't been as clear about this as I probably should have been. But in January, I started using this language of a house of prayer. This is our vision for the year. Everything we're doing as a direction team, as a staff, is aimed at growing our culture of prayer, right? the life of prayer in this church. We're a two-year-old church. This is our second year, and we want to take a step deeper into prayer. So we, if you can just think of some of the things we've already done this year. Early on, we finished the training of our Freedom Prayer team, and now you can sign up for Freedom Prayer prayer times. Um, those are amazing experiences. You can use the bulletin QR code if you want a prayer time. But our prayer time is, our prayer team is now ready. A little after that, we went through a series on prayer and fasting. Remember, we did 40 days of prayer and fasting. We're trying to add another tool of prayer to our tool belt with prayer and fasting. We introduced DNA groups. DNA groups are groups of spiritual friendships where we're going to be having intimate and missional prayer times. We're, we're trying to build and train for prayer because we have to pray. But right now, in this season, as we kind of move into Pentecost and into this prayer gathering, we're trying to take a step deeper into prayer, just more practically in our everyday lives. Some of you have seen some coffee equipment coming in. There's a really nice espresso machine. We have a small team of people who are right now exploring how to make Oikos a house of prayer during the week. Not just a coffee shop, but a coffee shop where the way of Jesus can be experienced and practiced. Yes, coffee. Yes, community. But around the way of Jesus. What could that look like? We're starting to ask those questions and we're looking for answers. We're seeking the Lord because we want this to be a house of prayer. We want this to be a house of prayer on Sundays. We want our homes to be homes and houses of prayer. We want it to be a house of prayer during the week. So how, how do we do this? You know, some of y'all know I love Tim Keller. Several years ago, Tim Keller was diagnosed with cancer, the first round. And he came home from the doctor with his wife, Kathy. And Kathy said, said this to him, just devastated, in tears. His wife says to him, we're just, we're not going to make it. She said, we have to pray. We're not going to make it. You know, it's out of your hands. What, what can you do? We're not going to make it. She said, imagine it like this, that there's, there's a sickness or a disease that's, that's hit you. And the doctor says, if you just take this pill every night, you're going to be okay. And she says, that's what I'm feeling about prayer right now. We're not going to make it unless we take the pill every night. We have to pray. But how? So Tim and Kathy started figuring out how they could bring prayer together to be a normal, routine part of their daily experience, because without it, we're not going to make it. That is how I feel about Oikos Church. And no, Oikos Church does not have cancer. Not yet. But there is this medicine. There, there is this, this thing that keeps you connected to the vine. And it keeps you pruned, and it keeps you fruitful. And we're not going to make it unless we, as a church, step deeper into prayer. We have to pray. But the, the question that Keller asked, he says, I know the necessity of prayer. We have to pray. But how? 
Even Paul, the apostle, in Romans 8, he says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We have to have it, and yet we don't know what to do. We need help, it seems to me. How can, there's this question of like, teach us to pray. And it's like, well, how can I, when I introduced our kind of vision for the year of being a house of prayer, I was like, how can I lead us into this? I'm still working on my own house. So it's, it's tough. Uh, it's, but it, obviously it's essential. If you just look at the book of Acts, or the church in the New Testament, you see that the church, they were constantly in prayer. That's the language of Acts 1.14. In Acts 2, their gatherings are devoted to prayer. In Acts chapter 4, they pray, and the power of prayer brings the power of the Spirit into the community. In Acts chapter 6, they pray for leaders. In Acts chapter 6, they also, they, the apostles, they say, we have to guard our time for the ministry of the word and for prayer. You see, every disciple and the leaders are expected to have these fervent prayer lives. Paul says that we're called to pray without ceasing. Instead of anxiety, he says, cast it on to the Lord in prayer. The sick are to be visited and they are to be offered prayers of healing. The whole Christian life is to be a life of prayer. We have to pray. But how? Prayer is as human as eating, one scholar says. And yet I'm convinced that feeling guilty about prayer is almost as human as eating too. You see, more than half of Americans pray every day. And yet when I talk to the most prayerful people that I know, they still feel like they have a large gap to get to where they want to be in prayer. Richard Foster begins his book, Prayer. He says, we today yearn for prayer and we hide from prayer. We are attracted to it and we're repelled by it. We believe prayer is something we should do, even maybe something we want to do, but it seems like a chasm stands between us and actually praying. The novelist Flannery O'Connor in 1946 when she was just 21, she was college age. She went on to become this world famous artist and novelist. But when she's 21, what she was feeling was a prayerlessness in her soul that she knew needed remedied. And so at 21 years old, she began keeping a prayer journal. She wrote some beautiful things. She said this, you are the slim crescent of a moon that I see and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. What I am afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. She has this longing for prayer that she writes about frequently in her journal. She says that prayer is the key to everything that she wants in her life. But then she says this, can't anyone teach me how to pray? Can't anyone teach me how to pray? And so where are the teachers? <laughs> we may need prayer, we may want prayer, but most of us have never been taught how to pray. I was struck by just how rare, even growing up in a Christian home, being taught how to pray was. A bedtime prayer, perhaps. Maybe a public prayer at church or saying grace at a mealtime. Those are good, valuable experiences for teaching prayer. But for most of us, we've never actually been taught how to pray. Can't anyone teach us how? 
most of us need a teacher's help to pray. And I was struck this week at a sports assembly for my kids. They said 75% of their students at this school participated in a sports team or a sports clinic. And yet the Christian school that they attend doesn't even offer a prayer clinic. Wouldn't that be weird if they did? It's so foreign to have a coach or a teacher or someone to teach us how to pray. It's not a surprise. We've never even heard of such a thing. N.T. Wright, in his book on the Lord's Prayer, he says, Prayer, of course, is a mystery. Many Christians, including clergy, have come to accept that they don't find prayer easy, that they don't really understand what it does or can do. He says, we feel like second-class citizens. And so you have lay people who say, well, I'll leave that up to the clergy. And then you have clergy who say, well, I'll leave that up to the priest and the nuns. And then the priest and the nuns say, well, we can't all be mystics, can we? So everyone seems to be saying, I can't do this just well enough. But on the other hand, as we're searching for teachers, there's also many voices speaking to prayer. Many voices. Sometimes the question is, where are the teachers? Sometimes the question is, which teachers? Everyone seems to pray, and so we have very different navigators for the course. Muslims pray five times a day. Many Jews pray three times a day. Buddhists pray using prayer wheels for the universe. Every religion prays. Everyone has an answer to prayer. Even in Christianity, there are many streams of prayer. Keller calls these powerful cross-currents that are causing dangerously choppy waters. There's this current of Eastern spirituality that's been drawing Americans in since the 60s and the 70s and sending some people out to sea. There's this swell of contemplative spirituality that draws from the monastic, the monks' traditions and the mystic traditions within the Catholic Church. Some are concerned that it replaces God with the self as the object of prayer, and it's more therapy than it is prayer. There's this wind of charismatic prayer that seeks authority and healing and power. There's this reformed prayer that seeks to anchor prayer in scripture and in liturgy. So how do we move forward with all these streams and cross currents making these dangerously choppy waters? Can't anyone teach us how to pray? And yes, there is one who can. Obviously, it's not me. <laughs> it's not Richard Foster. It's not Priscilla Shirer. It's not C.S. Lewis. It's not Tim Keller. And I would recommend all of their books to you. But there is one who can teach us how to pray. One time after praying, the disciples were just noticing Jesus. And they were longing to be in prayer like him. And so they came up to him in Luke 11 and they said, Lord, would you teach us? how to pray. There is one who I think we should start with if we're asking the question, how can we pray? And it's not the guru, Christian or otherwise. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief of prayers and the one who today is praying for you. Lord, would you teach us how to pray? God, our Father, we invite you to teach us Lord Jesus Christ, would you teach us how to pray? Would you speak from your words, ancient, and would you speak new words fresh to teach us how to pray? We need prayer. We can't live without it. And yet we long to be people of prayer and we experience the great chasm. 
Would you fill our hearts with peace? As we draw near, would you draw near? Amen. Lord, teach us to pray. This is part one of a new series called Teach Us to Pray. Just for clarification, I'm not the one teaching you how to pray. What I'm trying to do is help facilitate an encounter with Jesus in the very words he spoke when he was asked, Lord, teach us to pray. So this series is on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. And this is part one, simple prayer, simple prayer. The Lord's Prayer is found in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous teaching. And this is actually the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. This seems to be the hinge, the climax for everything that he's saying about life in the kingdom. Life in the kingdom comes down to a prayer that he gives to us. Now, um, the disciples observed Jesus doing all kinds of things. They saw him healing. They saw him casting out demons. They saw him preaching. But we don't see one recorded time in scripture, one author says, where they petitioned Jesus to teach us to preach. We don't see one recorded time where they said, teach us to heal, teach us to prophesy, or teach us to do miracles. After spending three and a half years with the Son of God, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. It's because Jesus' prayer life, even when he healed or when he prophesied, was saturated in prayer. He prayed out demons. He prayed for healing. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for children. He prayed for his enemies. He taught on prayer. He said, my house will be a house of prayer. In crisis, he prayed. In transition, he prayed. He prayed through the night. He prayed with fervent cries and tears. He died praying. And the disciples saw this man who prayed constantly, who would withdraw to lonely places to pray, who would go on to mountaintops to pray, who would spend the night in prayer. And they said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Because they discovered that this man in his profound public ministry was the direct result of his private life of prayer. We're not going to make it unless we become a house of prayer. The starting place is Jesus, and Jesus tells us this. He says, when you pray, pray like this. The Lord's Prayer may actually be the single, this is Keller, the Lord's Prayer may be the single set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of the world. Cyprian, this ancient church father, he says, what can be a more spiritual prayer than that which was given to us by Christ, by whom also the Holy Spirit was given to us? What praying to the Father can be more truthful than that which was delivered to us by the Son who is the truth? Out of his own mouth? Let us therefore, brethren, beloved, pray as God our teacher has taught us. Luther says the same thing. He says this is the best prayer because the Father composed it through his Son and placed it on his mouth. And for us, there is no doubt that this prayer pleases him immensely. But Jesus, before he gets into the Lord's Prayer, he says that there are some forms of prayer that are not good, that he doesn't listen to. He says there are some navigators of prayer who will lead you out to sea, and then there were some who will hold you close. So let's dive into Matthew chapter 6. We're just going to introduce the Lord's Prayer today, and then we'll keep going back to this prayer over the next uh, May and June. Verse 5 is when he shifts his attention to prayer, and he says, and when you pray, not if, when, do not be like the hypocrites. 
He's already talked about the hypocrites. The hypocrites are the people who like to be seen. They like to put on a show. The inside doesn't match the outside. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. In these cultures, there are set times of prayer. I'll talk more about set times of prayer in just a minute. But because they were set times of prayer, you could sort of plan out your day based on where you're going to be when the bell rings for you to start praying. And it's like, oh, I just happen to be in a very public place to be seen by others every day when it comes to prayer time. He says, you have your reward. This is not a pleasing way to pray. The motive is, is wrong here. He says, but when you pray, go into your room, or your translation may say, into your closet. Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. The unseen father, though, he says, your father who sees what is done in secret, he'll reward you. Prayer is not meant to be seen. It's not meant for a spectacle. It's meant for a private encounter with the Lord. Now, does this rule out all public prayer? No, Jesus himself prayed very publicly. Do you remember the feeding of the 5,000? Do you remember the feeding of the 4,000? The thing that starts off is a He's blessing the bread and he breaks it. He prays very publicly. There's a motive here that he's warning against. And he says, this intention is all wrong. He warns against another group of people. He says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. These are, the word is for Gentiles. They're, they're babbling. They seem to be going on and on. They, they, they think they will be heard because of their many words. Now, it's... Is this condemning all long prayers? Man, when I was a kid, I sure thought so, you know. <laughs> Did you ever time the old man praying in church to see how long he would go? May God forgive us, you know. I don't think that's what he's condemning. Uh, instead, we should be picturing not long, Jesus prayed through the night. That's a long time. That's not what he's after. But it's more like the prophets of Baal whenever Elijah was on top of Mount Carmel. And they're, they're just trying to think of new names for God. And they're trying to think of ways to persuade their gods to listen to them. They're cutting their wrists. They're doing all sorts of... It's, don't go on babbling like the pagans. They think they're going to be heard from them many words. Do not be like them because your father knows what you need before you ask him. We'll talk more about the father next week. Your father sees you. Your father knows you. This is the basis of prayer. The basis of prayer is not ignorance, it's not a distance from God, it's a connection with God, it's a, it's a being loved by God, it's being seen by God and being known by God. This is the basis of prayer for Jesus. He says you have to know who you're praying to. You're not praying to an unknown God, you are praying to your Father. Prayer matters and prayer is possible because God has come close, he wants to be with you. We'll talk more about Father next week, but then Jesus says this, this, then, is how you should pray. Now, in Luke's version, he's even more explicit. He says, when you pray, say this. In, uh, Scott McKnight, he's a New Testament scholar, he translates that Luke version. He says, whenever you pray, recite this. That's how it could be translated. Whenever you pray, cite this. Whenever, when you pray, say this. This is then how you should pray. Jesus is giving us at least a pattern for prayer, perhaps even the language of prayer itself. And so 
I think it's worth diving into for a couple of months. For the Son of God, the, the prayer of prayers, to tell us how to pray seems like it should matter to our prayer lives. So, when you pray, uh, this is then how you should pray. These verses don't teach so much how to pray, but what to say whenever you do pray. He taps into this great tradition of recited prayers. Now, in, in our Bibles, we actually have a full book. It's called Psalms. It's a book of written prayers that would have been prayed very consistently by the people of God for thousands of years. We, we, they, we, they know about written prayers. They know about reciting prayers. And Jesus is saying, but let me give you the best one. When Martin Luther wrote his commentary on the Lord's Prayer, he says, I love the Psalms, but this is the best prayer ever. <laughs> I love the Psalms, but this is the best prayer, best prayer ever. Breast prayer, that's a different thing. <clears throat> uh, McKnight, he says, set prayers, some of us, he said, in the context he grew up in, set prayers weren't uh, celebrated. Set prayers were for sissies. Or to put it more piously, set prayers were nothing more than vain repetition. This attitude is profoundly unbiblical, and directly contrary to what Jesus taught and what the church has always practiced. So that's also where I kind of grew up and came from. Any prayer that could be repeated week after week, I thought of, and I was taught that it was vain repetition. And certainly, vain, if it means empty, it can easily turn into vain repetition. But then I would go to church on a Sunday and I would hear these <laughs> repeated phrases week after week in the same order. And it was like, well, I don't know that we're avoiding vain repetition in the ways that we're doing it. So there's, there seems to be, it's not just a celebration of spontaneity, but here there seems to be a pursuit of the Holy One himself, the God and Father. He says, this is how you should pray. And then what we're going to do in the series is actually look in the month of May at really the first half of the prayer, looking at communion with God. And then we'll look at the second half of the prayer in June and look at contending with God. It's this tension of communion and kingdom that keeps showing up here. Do you see it here? The Lord's Prayer starts with communion. Our Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see, this is a pursuit of God. This is a quest for intimacy. This is saying, I want to give you adoration and praise. I want to be with you. I want intimacy. I want adoration. I want communion. The Lord's Prayer gives us a structure of pursuing God for God himself and then also interceding to God on behalf of the world. You see it here, the second half of the prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You see, it's, it's a meeting God, and then in meeting God, you come and you ask God to bring his will to bear on the world. There's communion, and there's kingdom. There's communion, and there's contending. There's intimacy, and there's intercession. These are the, the twin halves that we see all throughout the prayers of Scripture, where you come to God as God and you seek God. It's all over the Psalms, where people are desiring to be with God.
But then there's also all of these petitions and requests and intercessions and asking God for things. In Keller's book, he says, a lot of our literature today, the gurus and the guides on prayer, they emphasize that prayer is about communion. That prayer is just. The best prayers have no petitions. The best prayers are just about knowing God. And you know, that's actually not a biblical view of prayer. The Lord's prayer itself is not even that. There are very few prayers in the Psalms that do not have a request from God. And so he says, other people, they look at prayer and they say it's all about kingdom. It's all about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It's all about moving in action. I was listening to one teacher. He says, there seems to be a group of mostly progressive Christians who seem to think that prayer is about asking God to finally do the thing that he doesn't seem to care about and that no one else cares about but I want to do. <laughs> it's like, that's not it. And so instead, what we're trying to do in the Lord's Prayer, in this practice for May and June, is to bring together both communion and contending communion and kingdom together into a daily practice. I want to share with you what that could look like. Uh, actually, I, I should include this. This, um, it was great that it was overlooked, actually. Do you recognize this? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Have you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? This is always the ending to the prayer, praying of the Lord's Prayer. And it's because it's in the King James Version. But then it'll have this little footnote that says, this is actually not in any of the Greek texts. It seems to be in the later Latin text. And so it's like, why is this here? Um, if you look at your bulletin, I, I give you a, a translation of the Lord's Prayer on the back. Um, and I include this. Why do I include this? Um, let me just speak to that for just a second. McKnight, he says this. He says, Matthew doesn't have this in the Greek text. Luke doesn't have this in the Greek text. But it seems to be based on an Old Testament text from 1 Chronicles 29. It's a prayer there. He says, but by the end of the first century, it's already used across Christian churches in the first century. We recite them today because the public recitation of the Lord's Prayer seems incomplete without such an ending. As, as I sometimes say on this, this is not a part of the prayer that Jesus gave us, but this is part of the prayer that the church gave us. So I think it's totally appropriate to end the Lord's Prayer with yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What we're trying to do is bring together communion and kingdom, and we're going to give two practices in the next two months, contemplation and contending prayer. But before I even get into those this month, I really want to suggest simple prayer. Simple prayer. So contemplation, more to come contending more to come today simple prayer when martin luther the great reformer he wrote a letter to a friend and the friend was struggling with prayer he says i don't pray as i want to or as i ought and martin luther says yeah me too there's there's hardly anything more important than prayer but then he's like but there's all these other things to do in life and so he wrote a letter that is now called A Simple Way to Pray. And what Luther does is he gives the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed as a template for how to pray. A simple way to pray. It's been attractive for 500 years, if not before. Simple prayer. Today, simple prayer looks like two things. Permission and a practice. Permission. Let me start there. 
I want to give you permission. You don't need my permission, just for the record, but I want to voice it for those who think you do, to pray what's in you. Pray what's in you. Have you ever gotten a photo or a, a drawing from a small child? You know, it may say like, to Ashley or, or to mom or to dad. And then there's this work of art, right? You know what I'm talking about, work of art? In crayons from a four-year-old, illegible. Or they write like M, and then they run out of room. I saw yesterday at a Mother's Day dinner, Happy Moth's Day. They ran out of room on mothers, so it's just like, you know what I'm talking about, a work of art? In the same way that a small child cannot draw a bad picture, so a child of God cannot offer a bad prayer. So we are brought to the most basic, the most primary form of prayer, simple prayer. Richard Foster, he says, let me describe it for you. In simple prayer, we bring ourselves before God just as we are warts and all. Can I show you that simple prayer is biblical? To pray what's in you. Remember Moses. Moses is the leader of the people of Israel. There's this scene at the end of Exodus. The Lord is about to devastate the people. The golden calf episode has just happened. And do you remember what Moses does? He stands up in prayer before God and he intercedes. And he says, if you will forgive them their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book. Me for them. And then he says, show me your glory. Awesome, beautiful. He's like, I wish I was that guy. Let me share another prayer from Moses. What have I done to deserve these people? <laughs> did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land that you promised? In order to... Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Do you see... He gives God what's in him. Show me your glory. What did I do to deserve this? And see the honesty, the authenticity of prayer. How about Elijah? There's this scene where Elijah is, is praying for the healing of a woman and her son. And he tells her in 2 Kings 4, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, don't lie to your servant. He says, you will. And the prayer of Elijah is released in power and she is healed. And she experiences life for her son. Let me tell you another story of prayer of Elijah. There are these kids who are taunting him. They're saying, you bald head, you bald head. It's not just you, Thomas. <laughs> he turned around, he looked at them, and he called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Lord, release your power. Lord, release the bears. It's like, give them what's in you. David, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. There's one thing that I have asked for, one thing that I seek after. 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David, sounds like two things you want. (laughs) You want those children's father to be murdered and you want to give them what's in you. Pray what you've got. C.S. Lewis, he says, lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. The good, the bad, the ugly are all mixed together. Give God what you've got. Give him what you're able to. If you can't spend the night in prayer, spend a moment in prayer. If you can't find the words to pray, find his words and pray them. The first part of simple prayer is to just pray what's in you. Give it to him. That's prayer. Prayer is lament and it's grief and it's agony. It is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It is all the extremes of human emotion and life experience brought before our God and Father who loves us, who knows us, who sees us. Give him what you've got. Pray what's in you. Pray what's in you, but simple prayer is not just permission, it's also a practice. Pray what he gives you. Pray what he gives you. In the first century, there's this document that's written, it's called the Didache, it's the teaching. It seems to be written maybe even before the book of Revelation. This document is early. And in the eighth chapter of this book, they say that everyone should be praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day in this community. There's these fixed hours of prayer that are as old as Daniel and the Psalms. Remember, Psalm 1 says, day and night I meditate on you. Psalm 55 says, in the evening, at noon, and in the morning, I I meditate, I pray. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, it says they are going to the temple at the time, at the hour of prayer. There are these set prayer times throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Do you remember when Daniel got in trouble? The the king said, no more prayers, (laughs) no more prayers to any God but me. And when Daniel learned of this decree, he went upstairs to where his room was, and he looked out the window towards Jerusalem, just like 1 Kings 8 says about the temple. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Now, this is crazy because the Old Testament doesn't require that you pray three times a day. But for him... Daniel would rather die than compromise his daily rhythm of prayer. Now, I'd rather check Twitter and watch Netflix, but he would rather die than compromise his daily rhythm of prayer. Fixed hour of prayer is an ancient practice that continues on through the apostles and through the history of the church. And so I would love to encourage you, to invite you to pull out your calendar and to put a few times into your calendar to pray. Just little alerts to take a moment to pray. That can be morning, noon, and night, three times a day, like uh, God's people have done for many, many millennia. Or it can be when you arise, when you go to bed. It can be a mealtime with the kids. But then when you do, to pray what he gives you. This is simple. To pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray what he gives you. It's about consistency, 
not intensity. Now, there are moments and times where intensity in prayer is a, is a very good thing. It's totally required. That is what you've got. That is what's in you. But sometimes when you don't have it in you, what you need is consistency, not intensity. John Tyson, he's a preacher. He says, if life's always amazing, you're on heroin. <laughs> An addiction to religious ecstasy is often idolatry. Sometimes you have to pray even when you don't have it in you. Pray what he gives you. This is simple prayer. Now, some of us are worried about vain repetition. Um, Michael, um, worship leader, he told me a story of a church where they recited the Lord's Prayer every week. And there was this little boy who was reciting it. You know, he, our Father in heaven, hallowed be me. And then it ends. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. <laughs> Christians, we are not called to vain repetition but we are called to say this prayer. So somehow we need to, to be doing both of those things. Luther, he says, it could end up in vain babbling and empty chatter where you like are reciting the alphabet just as lay people use the rosary or the priests and monks say their prayers. But I want the heart to become excited about what kind of thoughts lay in the Lord's prayer. So he says, pray the prayer, but use the prayer as a springboard for your meditations and adorations and intercessions. Our Father in heaven. He says, this is how you should pray. This is a very simple way to pray. Our Father in heaven. And then you pray about the Father. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will. Now you pray about the kingdom. You see how he's moving through the prayer. He says, I recommend reciting the prayer and then working your way through the prayer in your own prayers. He says, you can pray this anytime and your heart can be excited about what you're saying. This is the best prayer. This is the prayer that he gave us to say. So how shameful it is then, to say the least, that a prayer from such a master be treated so carelessly by so many who thoughtlessly rattle it off. He says, do not go the way of vain repetition, but go the way of repetition. <laughs> Consistency, not intensity, but yet our hearts still need to be in it. So I'm, I would love to invite you at least to try it on like a new pair of pants for the next couple of months to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. Now, if you're a parent, I would even more strongly urge you to pray it with your kids. This can become just part of a bedtime routine. Um, for us in our home, we have a few weeks head start because we knew the series was coming. And so it wasn't just bedtime, it was dinner time. We sit at the table just about every night and have a family dinner. And so now, whenever we're saying grace at the table, we're just saying the Lord's Prayer. And after, you know, two or three days, the kids already know it. They pick it up so fast. Now, if we don't hit it at dinner, then I'll do it at bedtime. And then if I do it at dinner, then I'll do a different prayer at bedtime because I don't want our hearts to be lost in it. Can you invite your kids into praying what he gives us? They can learn it fast, and I think it can be transformative. Word for word, from beginning to end, Luther says, and after that, repeat one phrase or as many as you want. Another way of praying this is to devote, there's about seven phrases in the Lord's Prayer. You can devote Sunday to one, Monday to another, Tuesday to another. Pray what he gives you. Use this teaching as a real tool for practicing prayer. Pray what's in you. Pray what he gives you. Let me close with a quick reflection. I want to imagine what this could be like if you tried this on. 
if you tried it on where there were set times of prayer where you could just go into and this language became what you were dwelling on often, where you were multiple times a day reflecting on the Father, you were reflecting on the kingdom, on your daily bread, on your sin and forgiveness, on deliverance from evil. What, what could be different? I'm struck by a couple of passages. One is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul, he's wrapping up his letter, and he says, Be joyful always. Pray constantly. Pray without ceasing. He says, In everything, in all circumstances, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. A lot of people, I, I meet with a lot, of, a lot of folks who are trying to find God's will for your life. You're discerning direction, you know, degrees and jobs, and you're trying to make sense of relationships and where to move. You want to know God's will for your life. And then you stumble across these passages like First Thessalonians chapter 5, and he says, this is God's will for your life, to pray constantly, to give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for your life, so put it into practice. I think this could be a catalyst, not just for you and not just for your kids, but for our church to take a step into becoming a house of prayer. We're not going to make it unless we do. So Lord, teach us to pray. Last reflection comes from Hebrews 7. It can feel like prayer is something that I have to perform or I have to perfect. But then I read this, and it says that Jesus is the high priest forever, and so he is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him. I say, we need help, Lord. And he says, you want help? I can give you help. I can save you. I can save you completely. We feel like, I can help you partly, but you've got to do it the rest of the way. I can save you for the most part, but that's not what he says. He says, I can save you completely to the uttermost. If you want to draw near, look at this. He always lives to make intercession for them. Even when you're not praying, Jesus is in that heavenly room right next to you saying prayers for you. Even when you're not voicing it, he is for you. There is no condemnation with him. It says because he is the one who died and is risen, and furthermore, he's the one interceding for us. He lives to pray for you. He's communing with us even now as you're listening to me talk. He's contending for us now. It's not something that we have to perform or perfect because he has already performed it and perfected it. He prays for us even when we forget how to pray. Praise God for our mediator, Jesus Christ. And he is saying, I want to draw near to you. Will you spend a little time with me as I'm spending time for you? Would you stand? I want to bless you. And then encourage you to go pick up your kids downstairs and to walk in the way of prayer. Lord, our God, we desire to be people of prayer and for this to be a house of prayer. Would you sink seeds 
of kingdom work into each one of us. And would you speak in unique ways and burden us? And Lord, would you not let us distract ourselves with whatever's coming after so that we lose sight of prayer this week? Would you help us to make a plan today to step into giving what's in you and praying what you give us? For your kingdom and glory, in the name of our mediator and intercessor, intercessor, amen.